This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley in for Terry Gross. Even many people who prided themselves on hating disco loved one of its biggest hitmakers, Donna Summer. Her hits of the 1970s and early 80s included Hot Stuff, Last Dance, Heaven Knows, On the Radio, Bad Girls, and She Works Hard for the Money. She had three consecutive number one platinum albums and 11 gold albums. She's now the subject of a new HBO documentary titled Love to Love You, Donna Summer. She was considered a disco sex queen and she played the part well, but that's hardly how she saw herself. Donna Summer died in 2012. We're going to listen to Terry's 2003 interview with her. At the time, she had written her memoir, Ordinary Girl. She had her first hit, Love to Love You Baby, in 1975. She made that record when she was living in Germany, where she had starred in a production of Hair. In Munich, she met the record producer Giorgio Moroder, who became her collaborator and one of disco's most successful and influential producers. Summer had been doing demo recordings for Moroder when she came up with a line she thought would make a good hook for a song, Love to Love You Baby. I had this idea at home one day, and I ran into the studio, and, and I said, Giorgio, I have this idea, and would you, could, do you think you could write something to it? And I sort of sang it to him. And he kept saying it over. He says, love to love you, I love to love you, I love you, I love you. Uh, he kept rubbing his chin and thinking like a little mad scientist. And then he went into the studio and, and Giorgio had written this track. And I began to, uh, he asked me to go in and start singing something. And I had, didn't have any words other than love to love you, baby. So I was improvising on the track live. And that really became love to love you, baby, the original track. So when you sang him your initial idea, what was it that you sang? You know, love to I, I love I love to love you, baby. You know the melody of the song, mm-hmm. and then he went from there and produced something, and then I began to sing it, and then I began to play with the. Uh, there weren't that many words, so I played with the sound of uh, the music. You know, you know, I, they're, they're, we didn't have the same technology we have today, so I had to do everything with my own voice. You say in the book you approached the song like an actress because mm-hmm. you didn't think of yourself as having that kind of really sexy persona. So, mm-hmm. so. T- tell us about how you did approach recording the vocal. Well, the vocal was um, it was very breathy and airy, and basically I was a theater singer, so I had been you know much a, much more of a belter, and it was and and it was really different and difficult for me to tap into who this person was, and I so I imaged um, uh, Marilyn Monroe, and just began to think, well, how would Marilyn sing this song? And she would be very soft, and and then I, you know, I, I started playing with the thought in my mind, and then I, so as I began to sort of think of it her way through her, I began to understand who the song was for and who the song was about, and um, and the girl singing it, and and I tapped into it and, and recorded it. What well, what well, I think this would be a good place to hear your recording of "Love to Love You, Baby."
Donna Summer's first big hit. Now, when Neil Bogart um, decided to, to have this record on his on his label, he wanted a longer version for the dance clubs. Mm-hmm. So you had to go back and do like a long version, like what, 14 minutes? Well, it wasn't for the dance clubs. Actually, I think Neil had a little something else in mind. It it worked out for the dance clubs, but oh. it actually <laughs> it was for Tarred the secret love. times, <laughs> uh, secret lives <laughs> of of many people. But uh, he he had played the the, the short version um, when he was with his wife, and um, he thought that it was too short. He said, "This mood is so great. I I just want to hear it extended. What's the longest that you can extend it?" And Giorgio said, "Well, you know, we'll do the best we can." And we came back. I think the original was like 17 and almost 18 minutes. And, um, of course, he thought no one would ever play it on the air, but they wound up playing it on the air. What did you add for the long version? Well, there was music, extension music added, and um, bridge music. And there were other melodies inserted. And then just sort of vocal, sort of vocal swells. You know, just, it was a mood setter. What did you do to set your mood? Mine. <laughs> I laid on the floor, and uh, it, it was very difficult to do this because I mean I was a comedian, and Giorgio and I we were always goofing around. So uh, Pete and Giorgio had to turn the lights down. They, I think they might have brought some candles in the room or something. And I literally laid on the floor. They lowered the microphone to me, and I just you know, kind of sang it like I was you know having a romantic encounter. <laughs> it's it's embarrassing to me to say this now, but it's true, and. Uh, and we nailed the song finally. And, uh, you know, like I said, I came up with some vocal approaches that were not, basically no one had ever done before. So it kind of started the whole thing of this new type of music. Now, after uh, recording Love to Love You, Baby, you were brought to the United States to promote the record. Mm-hmm. And as you say, this is when you were transformed into a sex queen and sophisticated diva, um, which was a, a kind of awkward position for you to be in judging from what you write in your book because first of all you were brought up in the church and second of all you were used to singing in in like a theater setting not not being the sex queen and you thought you thought of yourself as comedic not 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 the sex queen what a contrast huh (laughs) (laughs) so how were you transformed what were some of the things that you were told you needed to wear or say or act like well, I mean, I have, um, you know, everybody has different portions of their personality, and I tend to be, I can be very, very quiet and to myself and withdrawn, and I just, you know, sort of, and I can be extremely outgoing when I need to be because I grew up in a big family, and so I just sort of drew on my on my other self, the one that I am most of the time when nobody's around, and uh, when when I just want to be alone, and that sort of... I thought that person would work fine for whatever it was I had to do. And so, I mean, the things that they that they encouraged me to do, you know, was to, uh, you know, they, they, they gave me a makeup artist and a, a hair person and a stylist. And, and, you know, they took me to Hollywood and did the whole Hollywood thing with the clothes and the makeovers and the, you know, things that I had, you know, done in different... I, I modeled in Europe, so I was familiar with all of that fashion, uh, you know, input but uh you know they wanted me to to look a certain way to to be a certain way and they said well when you're going to be a star people aren't asking for you they're asking for this image of you and so that's kind of what you know was done they began to transform me into an image how did you like the image 
Well, I didn't like the image per se. Um, I mean, I didn't particularly care for the sex image. Um, I thought it was kind of narrow. And I felt like I was going to have to break out real soon. Otherwise, I wasn't going to make it. So, uh, you know, initially for for the record, it was what, you know, what it sold the record. But it wasn't a place that I was comfortable. You were already a mother by then. Yes, I had one daughter, Mimi. Did Did that make it more uncomfortable being a mother? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think when you have to be accountable to people, it's hard not to think about what you're doing. When you don't have to be accountable to anyone, then you only have yourself to answer to. It's different. So I always felt like I had this sort of people to answer to. And my children and my child at the time was one of them. And I felt in the future, uh, I didn't want her to say, Mom, well, you did it, you know. But, you know. Did she ever say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she did. <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> what, what was your comeback? <laughs> much, much to my chagrin. I just told her it was a different time, and, I, you know, I came from a totally different life than her, and um, I was very insecure and not able to make my own stand at that time, and I allowed myself to be led into things that I, you know, really didn't approve of even for myself. For other people, they want to do it. That's their business. I, you know, I have nothing against that. But for me, I didn't think that it was the right. I, I would have, if I would have had to choose a song as a first song, it would have been Last Dance or Enough is Enough or something like that. After Love to Love You Baby became a hit, there was a cake, a now famous cake, that was made and delivered long distance. <laughs> would, <laughs> would, you, would you describe the cake okay. and the extremes that were gone to to deliver the cake to its destination? <laughs> well, that cake is actually in the book, and it was a cake that was made by Hanson's Cakes in L.A., and they did a picture of me from the album cover, and the cake was, oh gosh, I think it maybe it was about four feet, five feet long. It was body length. And uh, I was thrown out on the cake, you know, like like I am on the album. And it said, love to love you, baby, on it. And they flew the cake, first class, two seats, with people accompanying it from L.A. to New York to a party. And they presented it to me. And it was, you know, they brought it in on an ambulance. And, I mean, it was just this whole big to-do about this cake. It, it turned out to be a, its own <laughs> marketing tool <laughs> for the company and for me. It was quite a big thing at the time. There's a photograph in your book of your parents sitting on a couch next to the cake, <laughs> staring at the cake with a look, I think, of confusion and resignation yeah. on their faces. <laughs> Looking at it, what is going on here? <laughs> what did they think of this? Oh, uh, well, I, I think the look on my mother's face is, you know, pretty much that. What? This is not my child. She has no clothes on. <laughs> or she has very little clothes on. Her legs are expo- exposed. And my dad is looking at it kind of perplexed, going, I, 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 I thought I did a good job, you know? <laughs> and so they were so perplexed you know I mean they were really happy that day I think when they brought the cake they they just they were dumbfounded they'd never seen anything like it and to see you know that particular album cover done that big <laughs> I, they were in shock why don't we hear another recording and um, this is a, a, another one of your hits one of your I guess it was like your second big hit your second really big hit mm-hmm. this is the song Last Dance which is from the film Thank God It's Friday let's hear it <laughs>
That's Donna Summer, her hit Last Dance. Um, that's what we hear at the beginning of that is something typical for some of your start songs, starting slow, and then the beat comes in, mm-hmm. and 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 everything speeds up. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you and Maroder knew would would really work? And what what really works about that? Uh, I think we decided, and I don't know if it was Neil and and Georgia. We they wanted me to have a slow song as a hit, and they were having a hard time finding the right song for me to sing. And I don't know if it was Neil or Georgia who came up with the idea of why not start the song slow and then break out into it so people can start together and then you, they can swing themselves out and start dancing, you know, uh, the way they dance. And uh, it was a format that worked for us very well. I want to get back to what we were talking about before, which is like, you know, the image that was created for you okay. of like the the disco diva, the the, the sex goddess. Um, did you feel like you had to live up to that in your personal relationships? Well, not in my personal relationships so much, but I think in my, you know, public relationship to people. They When I did an interviews or, or whatever, people, <laughs> guys would be so nervous, like they thought it was going to, you know, just, I don't know, jump on them or something. And uh, I think the image was really pretty hard to live up to at some point, especially with my sense of humor. And um, at the time, my, my kind of quirky sense of mocking it just didn't go together so i had to really be be calm when i did interviews and not you know clown around too much what were the tours like i mean you describe in your book that you know sometimes you'd have like male dancers and loincloths <laughs> yeah well that was what was happening at the time i mean we had this one show that was i, I forget who designed the show but it was a big egg you know, there was smoke would be on the stage and lights would be down and I would be inside the egg. And then all of a sudden the music would start and the egg would start to break apart. And then four dancers would come out and lift the shell off and I would be unveiled in the middle. <laughs> Don't ask me whose idea that was. But in any case, the audience would go crazy because the egg had been out there from the time they got there. So I'd be out in that egg for, for 10 minutes while people are getting in, you know, in their seats and stuff. But um, so, I mean... Originally, the the you know the shows were pretty uh, pretty racy. I'd say, you know, people would throw bras on stage and underwear and all kinds of things. And at some point, doing love to love you, baby, became almost impossible. I, I just couldn't do it after a while. It was just more than I could handle. People threw their bras on stage. Their bras, their underwear. People would rush the stage, men and women, and, and just throw themselves at the stage. It, it was it was like nothing I have ever seen or, or experienced uh, in my life. It was just such a strange thing. You know, when I would start doing the song, this, people would literally just break out and run down the aisles and try to jump onto the stage. And many times they made it. And it was back in the days when I, I only had... I think, well, I had two bodyguards, but they weren't enough to to fit all the way across the stage. And so some people would manage to break through the lines, and it was pretty scary. Well, why don't we hear another record here? My okay. guest is Donna Summer, and her new book is called Ordinary Girl. It's an autobiography. Why don't we hear Bad Girls? And um, how did you come up with the idea of writing a song about hookers? It wasn't the first song I wrote about hookers, by the way, but it was the most famous one. <laughs> and uh, it came about because someone in my office was accosted by the police, and uh, they thought that she was a hooker. And that's how the story came about. Um, now, you, as you describe in your book, Neil Bogart from your record label didn't mm-hmm. want you to record it. He wanted Cher to record it. 
what was his problem with having you record this song? He just thought it was uh, too rock and roll, too... He didn't think it was dance enough at the time, the way it was re- recorded originally. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had gone in and recorded it with my husband, Bruce, and the Brooklyn Dreams. They did the back, they did the track. But I, when he said he wanted to give it to Cher, I told him, I, I don't think so. <laughs> this is my song, and I keep Cher. I love Cher, but she can't have my song right now. And uh, so I, I just took the song, and we, we just sort of canned it. How'd you get about, back to it? Well, how it came about was pretty pretty bizarre, actually. Um, I was in the studio, and a friend of mine worked in the studio. He ran the studio, actually. He's an engineer, Steve Smith. And he was going through old tapes, and he heard Bad Girls. And he's like, Don, I just, man, I, I heard this tape last night. He said, I played it over and over again. I think this is a hit record. I said, you do? I said, well, I know, but Neil doesn't want me to do the song. What am I going to do? He said, I said, he doesn't want, he won't let me. I already asked him. He said, look, I, I think you got to pull the song out. I think you got you to gotta release the song. And I said, well, you know, when Giorgio comes, maybe you can play it to him and just see how he feels about it. Well, the song was down. There wasn't any beep beeps or toot toots on it. And, um, and it still needed some work. And Giorgio took it out, and he actually loved it. And he said, well, you know what? <laughs> Let me work on this. So he went to work on it, and then uh, I came in and did some more vocals and things. And and um, it was missing something. And I kept thinking, what, what, you know, what do you do when you're sitting in a car trying to get a prostitute's attention? And I said, you, ho- you honk your horn. So the beep beep and the toot toot was how to get people's attention. And it did. It worked. Oh, such a great record. Let's hear it. This is Donna Summer singing Bad Girls. That's Donna Summer. She spoke to Terry Gross in 2003. After a break, we'll continue their conversation, and we'll remember Chris Strackwitz, the founder of Arhuli Records, who died earlier this month. He traveled the country to track down and record regional musicians, releasing invaluable collections of blues, Cajun, Zydeco, Tex-Mex, and gospel. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm David Cooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University, in for Terry Gross. We're listening to Terry's 2003 interview with Donna Summer, the subject of a new documentary on HBO titled Love to Love You, Donna Summer. It premieres Saturday night. She died in 2012. She became a top-selling disco queen in the 1970s and 1980s, but was involved in music long before that. She sang in a psychedelic rock band in the late 60s, and in the mid-70s, before her disco years, she moved to Germany to perform in a theatrical production of Hair. It was there when she began working with record producer Giorgio Moroder. 
Oh, I went there when I auditioned for Hair, and I got the part. In uh, that was I auditioned in New York, and I got the part. They were getting ready to put up a cast of Hair in Germany, and they didn't have any black kids for the show, so they auditioned for kids in New York, and uh, there were three hundred kids the day I auditioned, and there only two of us were taken. I was one of them. Did you love doing the show? Yeah, at the time, yeah, I did. It was it was a it was a lot of fun, and I was coming of age in a in a whole other climate, and a whole other community, with a, you know with different challenges and different excitement, you know. And it wasn't like growing up in America. It was, it was just this having this whole other space to become an adult. And um, was that a good thing? Oh, it was great. What was, I think, what was I, good about that? Well, I think growing up, you know, I grew up in the church, and it grew up very strict. And this was the antithesis of that. And I really had to find my way in the middle and go, okay, this is my line. I'm walking this line. And it made me establish my own identity. And it made me know who I really was and what I really, you know, believed in for myself. And it wasn't something that, you know, I'm doing this because my parents said do this, or I'm not doing this, or I'm doing this because all these people do this. It was having this sort of extreme liberalness on one side and extreme, you know, strictness on the other, and then going, okay, this is what's right here. I This is comfortable. And I can I can live with this. So That's beautiful, because like in Germany, you, you found out who you really were, and then you mm-hmm. became a star, and they made you over <laughs> to somebody else. <laughs> Constantly being made over. What am I going to do, you know? Never good enough. <laughs> I want to ask you about being born again. I know that's been very important in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point in your life did that happen? It happened um, at the height of my career, to tell you the truth. And it happened at a time when I probably without it would not be alive. And so I think that um, it was my, definitely without a question, not think, I know, it was my saving grace from God. Like at what point, like what records were coming out at about this time? Just so we can oh, place it. let's see, where, where am I at? It was probably around the bad girls, enough is enough. No, maybe it was a little after that. Somewhere in there, somewhere around and about that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, and some I of the think. things that were going wrong with your life at that time, you, you, you say you don't think you would have survived if you hadn't no. been born again. No, I what, wouldn't have. What was going wrong? <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I just, I think that I was exhausted. Mm-hmm. I think emotionally exhausted. I had seen it all. I felt like I'd seen it all, and I didn't feel like there was anything left to do. I felt like, you know, I, 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 what am I doing here in this place? What is the purpose of my being here? And um, I think when you start asking those questions, you better find answers because it can be extremely depressing if you don't. And I, I think that you probably, I don't know if you go through this, but as creative people, I think artists tend to go through this, you know, quite a few times in their existence. It's, it's a par for the course. And uh, it's what makes you go to the next level. But, you know, if you're aware that there is another level, I felt like I had gone to that level and I didn't know where to go from there. Mm-hmm. So I felt like, well, there's nothing left for me to do now but just die. And so I, you know, I needed God. Do you have a favorite of your um, hits that we haven't played yet? Favorite? Well, I like Last Dance. I love Last Dance. And I'm going to love, you know... On the radio, too? On the radio. Good choice. Let's hear on the radio. <laughs> t- t- <laughs> oh, you clever little one. <laughs> t- tell us about um, uh, you know, the, the origin of the song and, and the production on it, how you put okay. it together. Mm-hmm. 
on the radio uh, was I was in the studio with on the radio for about three weeks to a month not in the studio with it but I had the song Giorgio had given me the track and I said Giorgio what is there anything did you have anything in mind when you wrote this track and he kept saying well he said something with the radio and I said okay I said okay and I, I pondered it for about three weeks I couldn't come up with a word and so one day I was in the studio, and it was the day I was supposed to be recording something else, and I was sitting at the piano, and I was up at Rusk's studio in Los Angeles. I was at the piano, and Stephen Bishop's uh, record was on the, on the top of the piano, and I looked at the record, and I know Stephen, and we've written together, and I'm like, you know, how would Stephen say this? What, would, what line would he come up? He's so clever. And all of a sudden, this, saw, this one saw, a line came to me, and it was, uh, must have fallen out of a hole in your old brown overcoat. And it just, it was like lightning bolt. Okay, that's it. I knew who the person was. I knew who the person was in the song. I knew who she needed to be. I needed, knew what she was going through. And I knew what, she, what had to be said. And so as soon as I got all of the personal information on the character, I was able to go into the studio, stand on the microphone, and sing the song pretty much verbatim. The way you hear it. And I think I got most of the song in the first take. So... You know, it was about having that story in my in my psyche and being able to go on there and sing it from that person's perspective. And once I got the perspective, I was riding. You know the whoa whoa. You know, like on the radio, whoa. Um, uh-huh. Sorry for uh-huh. doing that so horribly. Thank you. Um, when, <laughs> when at what point in the song does that actually come to you that you that you're going to do that there? Is that when you're at the mic or is that when you're doing the songwriting? <clears throat> I think that I just did that spontaneously. I mean, I don't think that. Um, I don't. I just think it came out. I don't think I mm-hmm. planned it, you mm-hmm. know, but it just probably needed something there. Donna Summer, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Okay, well, this is Donna Summer on the radio. Someone found the letter you wrote me on the radio And they told the world just how you felt it must have fallen out of a hole in your brown overcoat. They never said your name, but I knew just who they meant. Whoa, I was so surprised and shocked, and I wondered too if I just. That's Donna Summer. She spoke to Terry Gross in 2003. Coming up, we remember record executive and musicologist Chris Strackwitz, the founder of our Hooli Records, who died earlier this month. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. As a teenager, Chris Strackwitz heard a recording of Lightning Hopkins and fell in love with the blues, leading him to a lifelong devotion to regional American music. Blues, Cajun, Hillbilly, Zydeco, Tex-Mex, and Gospel. In 1960, he founded the Arhuli record label. 
Strachwitz died May 5th at the age of 91. Bonnie Raitt said of him, The ripple effect of Chris Strachwitz in the world is immeasurable in preserving this music. I can't even imagine what it would be like to not have heard those recordings. Chris Strachwitz traveled the country looking for little-known performers, recording them in their homes, front porches, beer joints, and churches. He recorded You Gotta Move by the then-undiscovered bluesman Fred McDowell. Guitarist Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones heard it, and later the Stones covered the tune. Strachwitz also recorded Flacco Jimenez, Big Mama Thornton, Clifton Chenier, Mance Lipscomb, and many more. In 2016, Smithsonian Folkways acquired Arhuli Records, but Strachwitz continued his nonprofit Arhuli Foundation, which promotes and preserves American roots music. We're going to listen to Terry's 1990 interview with Chris Strachwitz. Though he devoted his life to recording the indigenous music of the U.S., Strachwitz was born in Germany and came to California as a teenager in 1947. He told Terry he first heard the music of the American South on the radio. I think that was my first exposure to all of it. And I was absolutely wiped out by it. I guess I had a lot of insecure feelings. I couldn't speak the language. I was real skinny. And uh, somehow the blues that I heard, I think, spoke to me the strongest. I'll never forget that first record by Lightning Hopkins I heard. Uh, Hello, Central, please give me 209. I want to talk to my baby. She's way on down the line. And uh, it just blew me away. <laughs> and I also loved hillbilly music. I heard T-Texas Tyler, the Maddox Brothers and Rose, and uh, gospel music. I heard the St. Paul Baptist Church Choir over a station out of Los Angeles. All of that, you know, it was just the radio was my ear to the world, so to speak. Um, and I think part of my love affair with this music has been my love affair with meeting these other cultures. When you started collecting records, uh, where did you go to get them? I mean, I think a lot of people thought of 78s as, as junk, that they'd just sell in well, flea markets or give them away. Well, that was at that time the only kind of record. I was the only one in existence. It was a marvelous medium. And uh, it turned out almost every kind of vernacular music was recorded. And uh, I found out it slowly. I didn't have any money, but I would save my allowances. And uh, once in a while, I could splurge and buy myself a 78. And I would, I would wear them out, I can tell you that. <laughs> what made you decide to, to try to record people and, and, and meet the people uh, mm -hmm. whose records you were listening to and record new records by them? Well, since I was so enamored with this whole idea of records and what's on them, you know, I always collected things and stamps before that, but records, you could hear what's in those grooves. And I guess I was simply amazed by it all. And when I came up here to Northern California, I met people like Bob Geddens, a black man originally from Texas who was recording here in the Bay Area. Uh, and then I met a man named Jackson. He lived on 7th Street in, in West Oakland. He was recording literally in his back room with one microphone and a, and a disc cutter, you know, where you cut directly to discs. or early 78s were all done that way. And I simply was amazed that this is all it takes. I, I first thought to make a record, you go into one side of a factory of a huge place, an artist goes in and out on the other side come the records. But I had no idea what the in-between process was. And sort of meeting all these people taught me. Some of the early music that, that you recorded was Zydeco music in Louisiana, in, in, uh, at house parties, in bars. I want to play one of those early sessions. But before I play it, um, tell us what Zydeco is. 
and, 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 and how, how it's distinguished from, say, Cajun music. Yeah, I didn't know what Zydeco music was either when I first went down there in 1960 or 59, so I simply asked people, what, what does Zydeco mean? And some of them said, well, it means snap beans, not salty. It's an old tune that, we, that everybody knew. Others said, oh, it's just going out in the country and having a party, going to the Zydeco, going to party and having a good time playing music, push and pull, you know, that accordion music. And so that's basically what it is. It's the uh, music of the French-speaking Creoles, uh, blacks, in southwest Louisiana, in contrast to the white Cajun music. Now, I want to play something that you made uh, in the early 1960s. This is called uh, Tap Dance. It's by a group, uh, McZeal and and Gergner. Um, Tell us where you recorded this, who they are. Well, I'm really not too sure who they were. At that time, I was just wandering around and just asking people. You know, I was driving... And uh, they said, oh, yeah, I met them somehow through someone else. And they said, we're playing a little house party. Come on over and join us, you know. And so I did. I simply went to this little house in, in, in Lafayette, I believe it was. And they played for me. And there was a bunch of people having a good time in, at, at the house. And uh, they were very typical of, of the little Zydeco groups that were all over the place, usually just accordion and rubboard. Uh, in Houston. Rubboard is like washboard? Yeah, like a washboard, and at that time they were still pretty much looked like a washboard. I later found out that some of them would take pieces out of an old icebox where there was corrugated steel in them, and they would cut out a piece that they can scrape on. Because the regular old washboard, see, that metal is much too soft. It just wears through in no time when you're scraping away on it with beer can openers and all that sort of stuff. So they were using a corrugated metal, steel metal, right off the bat. And uh, now it's become a real fashionable instrument that was sort of invented by Clifton Chenier or by his brother Cleveland Chenier, who was really one of the giants of the of the whole genre. And they went down to uh, a guy once, uh, they t- Clifton told me, he said, I went down to the steel company and told him, can you make me one like this? And he said he drew it in the sand as to how he wanted it with this collar on it that would fold back over his shoulders, you know, and then hanging in front of his, uh, his chest. And they said, sure, we can make that. And... Uh, that's how these uh, uh, rub boards were made that you see now being, being worn by almost all the rub board players. Well, let's go to this 1961 recording that, that, that you made at a house party in Lafayette, Louisiana. <laughs> That was recorded in 1961 by Chris Strachwitz. He spoke to Terry Gross in 1990. More after a break, this is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. Let's return to Terry's 1990 interview with Chris Strachwitz, the founder of our Hooli Records, who died earlier this month at age 91. Let's, let's play something by Fred McDowell. Now, this is also one of the early recordings that you made. He was a, a Mississippi uh, blues guitarist and singer, and probably the most famous record that you recorded of his is You Gotta Move, which was later covered by the Rolling Stones. Well, I guess that's the one that became famous because they did it, you know. And uh, he was an extraordinary person. I was wiped away when I heard the Alan Lomax collection from Mississippi. And I remember I wrote to Alan Lomax, where is this man from? And he gave me an address in Clarksdale, Mississippi, and I went to the post office, where's Route so-and-so? 
<laughs> he said, oh, it's out there north of Highway 61. Go out there. And I met him just getting off a tractor, and I recorded that record there the same night. Not this particular one, but that first album. Uh, I don't think he sang You Got to Move on that first uh, night we recorded, but... Uh, what a wonderful person, Fred McDowell. He loved his music, and he was just as passionate about it as anybody I've ever encountered. And he would play on. If you meet him, he didn't care if, if he's getting paid or not. He, he loved what he was doing. It was just a sheer joy, that man. Let me play something that you recorded by him in um, 1965. This, this is You Gotta Move. Fred McDowell singing You've Got to Move. Now, um, this is uh, a song attributed to Fred McDowell. Is it ever hard to tell who actually wrote a song, a blues song? Because there seems to be so many permutations Mm -hmm. of more or less the same song. And Mm -hmm. uh, I I found in books that I read that sometimes songs are attributed to different people, (laughs) depending on who you're reading. It's a real problem. In that particular instance, it's a traditional song, but the arrangement is by Fred McDowell. Reverend Gary Davis also had a very distinctive arrangement of it, but it... Yeah, you sort of remind me of the fact that, you know, as I got into this whole music thing, one slowly begins to realize what responsibilities one has. And that was one of the early ones I think I encountered, this whole business of copywriting. Because when you're recording someone, or you're really capturing some of their talent or you're capturing some of their ideas. People who write books, you know, okay, they go to a publisher and they have their books written and copywrote and all that. But these vernacular musicians don't. And so you're really responsible for protecting them. And I learned this really primarily from a good old buddy down in, in South Louisiana, Eddie Schuler. He, he once heard my tapes, you know, I played them to him, and he says, Chris, what do you want that stuff for? Get their songs. I said, what do you mean, get their songs? I got them right there on the tape. No, man, that ain't what I'm talking about. Copyrights, get their copyrights. If Frank Sinatra or the Beatles want to make a big hit out of it, you know, then if you got the copyright, that's where you make the money, and you share that with the composer. So I kind of learned that, you know. You don't read that in books, but you begin to realize what responsibilities you have in life. So how did you handle it on You Gotta Move? Uh, Well, there, that was a... (laughs) You opened a can of worms. Okay. Uh, Mr. Klein, who was the manager of the Rolling Stones, he insisted, of course, that everything the Stones recorded was theirs. However, Mick Jagger was good enough to put on the first recording of that particular version that they did the name of Fred McDowell. He listed that as the composer on the Atlantic label. Okay, all hell broke loose. I said, Fred, where did you learn this song? He said, Chris, I learned it out of a book. 
And then Manny Greenhill, who represented <laughs> Reverend Gary Davis, called me and he said, Chris, you know Reverend Gary Davis wrote that song, not Fred McDowell. I says, Manny, you and everybody else knows it's a traditional song. It's their various arrangements that may be worth copywriting here, you know. And so we finally headed out and we agreed that as long as somebody would record Fred McDowell's version, which had that slide guitar, very eerie sort of thing, it would be mostly going to Fred McDowell. If they were recording the very finger-picked guitar style of Reverend Gary Davis's version, he would get most of the copyrights, but it is a traditional song. And uh, I think all you can do is handle the arrangement of it. And uh, Fred McDowell was, before he died, he was absolutely amazed. I handed him a check for over $7,000. He says, Chris, I can't believe it, but I'm glad somebody out there likes my music. Well, let's get to uh, the, the border region um, and, and play some music uh, uh, of, the, of the Southwest. You have a film that you uh, did along with Les Blank. It's called Chulas Fronteras. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, we did uh, that, oh, that's almost over 10 years, 15 years ago, but it's still a classic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, now what, what kind of uh, music are you playing on here? This is what most people down there call a conjunto music, but of course the Spanish word conjunto simply means group. In uh, Cuba they call groups conjuntos, etc. But down there in South Texas it means a group that consists of button accordion, a bajo sexto, which is a big fat 12-string guitar, a bass, and drums usually. And that was the popular music at the time in the 60s. It still is pretty strong, but, uh, you know, tastes do change and the kids go for something a little bit more modern, sort of schmaltzy nowadays. But conjunto music at its best was this absolutely powerful, powerful, uh, what shall I say, vernacular music of that time and the place. You know, it still goes on strong, yeah. Well, this is the uh, Corinas Flaco Jimenez, and the song is Munjaro Sin Licencia, Mojado uh, sin licencia, a wet back without a license. That was written by his father, the late Santiago Jimenez, yeah. Okay, let's give it a listen. Chris Strachwitz spoke to Terry Gross in 1990. The founder of our Hooli Records died earlier this month. He was 91 years old. The book, Our Hooli Records Down Home Music, The Photographs and Stories of Chris Strachwitz, will be published in October. 
On Monday's show, Wanda Sykes. In her new Netflix comedy special called I'm an Entertainer, she talks about raising teenagers with her French wife and what it's like to live in the world after a pandemic, an insurrection, and George Floyd. She also stars in Mel Brooks's History of the World Part Two. Her last comedy special was the 2019 Emmy-nominated Not Normal. Hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shuroff. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. For Terry Gross and co-host Tanya Mosley, I'm David Bean Cooley.